On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are chatting about driving high. There's a new survey out that says a large number, more than 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds in Canada say they have driven their car while high or have been a passenger in a car with someone who's driving high. To me, that's a staggering number. So we're going to have someone on who has tested this. She did a first-person test in a controlled setting. She didn't just get in her car. But to find out whether there's a reason why people seem to think they can drive while high, unlike most of us who know when driving drunk, for example, or driving when intoxicated, we know where that is. Is there a reason why this is so confusing or is it just badly worded law? We'll talk about that. Also, term limits for city councillors. There's a Toronto councillor who will join us who is proposing, who has brought forward a motion that Toronto councillors should have term limits. What about here? Should we have term limits for Hamilton City Council? You do two terms, you do three terms, then you move on and let in some fresh blood. We'll talk about that. Also, Don Robertson joins us, talk about sports, talk about the World Juniors, talk about the NFL, talk about favorites. All that's coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have heard, because I know they've talked about it on the air today here on 900 CHML, that edibles landed on shelves across Canada today. Edible cannabis products we're talking about. Uh, There's some questions about supply and all the rest. That's not really what we're going to talk about, though. It's more the cannabis itself. Uh, Because this comes just a few days after the Canadian Automobile Association released a survey that said 26%, basically one in four Canadians between the ages of 18 and 24 have either driven a car while under the influence of cannabis uh, by their own admission or have been in the car with someone who's driving under the influence of cannabis. And the most reason, the most popular reason, the most common reason given for why they did it, there were a bunch of them, but the most common one was they didn't really feel impaired. They didn't really feel like it was affecting their driving. And it seemed timely because with the number of, with edibles now available, it seemed probably reasonable to expect to some degree a growth in usage in the country. It'll go up by a little bit now that it's more available, which might mean more drivers on the road after using. Well, is this really a problem? I mean, we know what the problem is with driving drunk. Is it really a problem driving high? And further, is it a problem when we seemingly don't really know what the laws are, at least most people don't really know what the laws are. Well, I want to bring in someone who has an interesting perspective on this. Uh, Manisha Krishnan is a senior writer with Vice Canada. Some time ago, uh, she herself got high in a controlled setting. It was part of a process here. It wasn't just for fun uh, to see if she could legally have driven under Canada's current and new impaired driving law. She joins us now. Manisha, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thanks for having me on. So just as a little background for people listening to this, uh, you're someone who knows, first of all, about this. You regularly write about the cannabis industry as part of your job. Yeah, I'm basically um, a beat reporter on cannabis legalization. So it's something you're very familiar with, and you, if anyone should know, or you would think would know what the laws are, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, You also write in your piece, I'm not breaking any news here, you said this yourself, uh, you are a regular cannabis user and have been for some time. This is not new to you to have tried this? No, yeah, that's true. Okay. So you, again, you, if anyone, you would think more than some 16-year-old kid would know what the laws are or what they are supposed to be or what they mean in practical terms, right? You would think. 
Yeah, I know what the laws are, um, but they are pretty complicated. And so I don't think the average person really understands them. So when you went to do this test, did you know or did you even have a reasonable understanding or guess of how much cannabis you would have to ingest to reach the legal limit that they would have in a blood test? No, I had no idea what the numbers would translate to uh, in real life for my body and my consumption. Because I think most people, I don't know if you agree or not, I think most people have a pretty good idea when it comes to drinking, how many drinks would put them to the point where they would not only be impaired or intoxicated, but be around the point of driving drunk. Would you agree? Uh, maybe, maybe not. When, when I think most people would know uh, maybe roughly like what their personal limit is for okay. alcohol. Yep. But when I lived in BC years ago, um, BC implemented like the, the strictest drunk driving laws in the country. And as an experiment in my newsroom at that time, we had a cop come in and we all had rounds of beers. And after each round, he breathalyzed us. And some of us were actually quite surprised. Um, at how much you could drink and still be under the legal limit. So that did happen, and that kind of changed my perspective on that as well uh, on ter in terms of people being able to gauge their own, um, you know, if they're at the legal limit or not. Okay, and that's a great point because everyone does have a different uh, ability to, I guess, you know, people would say hold their booze or whatever else would be the phrase. I, mm -hmm. I guess the difference is we at least have through a number of years now, through maybe decades now, some concept, I think, that, okay, if you're a person of, you know, whatever, two, three, four drinks, and I think most of us would say you have four drinks, you better not be driving, but we know that you're getting into danger territory or past danger territory. I don't think yeah. people have any idea how much... THC is in a joint or would be able to measure whether or not they are breaking the law or not? Yeah, that I would agree with. Um, you know, the government has set these per se limits, which is basically the amount of THC uh, that can be in your blood. And those are effectively meaningless to most people. And, and what is the limit now? Do you know? It's two nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood. Uh, <laughs> Which is talking some other language. It's Yeah, it basically sounds like jargon, but that's kind of the on the lower end. Um, and you uh, could be punished by up to $1,000 um, fine. And then if you go start to go over and higher into the limits, uh, you can be put in jail for up to 10 years. That's kind of the maximum punishment. And do we know how much... THC is in a typical joint or is it different with everyone? So there's no real, because a drink is sort of a standard measure. Is it the same with a joint? Um, so the way that cannabis works is uh, there, there will be like a percentage of THC depending on what type of weed you get. So, you know, you can get pretty low percentage cannabis or you can get high percentage cannabis. Like you can get sort of in the 20%, that would be on the higher end, 20% THC. But, um, you know, as far as like what's in a joint, uh, I don't, I can't really say because again, there's so many subjective ways of rolling a joint and how much you put in that joint. It's not like a um, drink, like a drink, you it, know what the amount is per drink. But Manisha, you had a, a simulator, a driving simulator come in and you vape some cannabis to get a, a sense of this. Um, walk us through what you did here and, and, and what happened in this experiment. I, I will walk us through the experiment. Um, I do have a comment about the simulator, but uh, basically in a nutshell, the experiment was 
Um, I smoked some weed. I smoked around a joint's worth of weed um, and then went inside. We had a driving simulator, but we also, and this is the more important part, we had a drug recognition officer. He's a former policeman who specializes in giving sobriety tests. Um, So we had him on hand, and then we also had a scientist on hand who would take my blood uh, sort of in increments, like pretty much every hour or whatever after I had inhaled uh, the cannabis because we wanted to test my impairment, and then we wanted to match it up and see how much cannabis was actually in my blood and at what point it peaked and sort of faded away. Okay, so the very first thing that I want to jump to here is you say in the story that you wrote about this that you 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 had enough cannabis that you got to the point where you would normally have said to yourself, I would not drive here. Was that a typical amount, would you say, that a person would use or was that above what a normal person would use generally? Yeah, it was about a joint's worth. So I feel like that's a pretty average and typical amount to consume. Um, and uh, yeah, right, right immediately after, you know, I felt pretty baked and I was like, I wouldn't drive right now. And what happened with your driving when you used the, sim- the simulator? What was happening with it? So the simulator, basically, I, uh, I just was driving too slow. Um, and so I ended up failing it. But I do want to make a comment about the simulator. Um, It's just not a very, the one that we ended up using, it just wasn't a very scientific way of doing it. So I wouldn't put too much weight on that simulator itself, um, unfortunately. Okay, fair enough. Uh, How did you do, you had the roadside sobriety testing being done, essentially. How did you do in that one? Yeah, so this is the more important piece to me. Um, So basically, he did the roadside sobriety test. Uh, and it's like a couple of things. There's one thing where you kind of have to walk and turn, another balancing one, and then another one that tracks your eyeballs. Um, and I did, I did fail that one, uh, although he did say I, I, I very nearly passed it. So I failed that one, which is the short, short abbreviated test that you would take roadside. And at that point, um, I would have been arrested and they would have said, we have to take you for further testing. And that could be in the form of a blood test or they take you back to the station and they do a full evaluation on you to determine if you are impaired or not. And here's where the first problem with this all comes for me. Again, reading mm-hmm. your story. And it was a great piece and people can find it at Vice Canada if they want to go find it. Vice.com. It's a great piece. Um your blood test was taken, uh, and again, this is pretending this was real life, but was taken two and a half hours after vaping, and it found there was not much THC in your blood. So you've said, I was baked, I wouldn't drive, but if you got pulled over, did the roadside test, by the time they take you to the police station and take the blood, uh, you could potentially be well under the limit, so they couldn't really get you for that. Yeah, um, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, so what ended up happening uh, with me is that he the DRE officer, the drug recognition expert, he put me through the full evaluation. Um, And at that point, when I completed all the tests, he was like, I've determined that you're not impaired. Um, So I guess I get I understand what you're getting at. I just think that it's it's not great to fully fixate so much on these blood per se limits because the truth is they do not determine impairment. 
and the government has admitted that. Well, and, and that comes, yeah, that's the other point. And just the other way, because again, using your word that you were, you were baked, you said you would not drive. And at the height of when you were feeling this, when your blood test was taken, your, if I understand this correctly, that the, the blood level showed up that you were only at 25% of the maximum to go over. So you were, yes. there was like, so you're feeling completely impaired and the legal limit is way, 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 way higher, which seems to me like something's amiss. Yeah, but the thing is, so if you look at other people in other scenarios, it goes the other way. Um, where the cannabis actually stays in their system, the THC stays in their system, especially if they're medical consumers, it can stay in your system for weeks. So there have been people who have kind of been caught the other way, where it's like that THC is in their system, but they're not actually impaired. So can Um, you understand then how someone, because we got this survey that says that all these people are driving and they're saying, because I didn't feel impaired, so I'm going to go ahead. Can you understand that then, that sense that I was fine? Yeah, because impairment is kind of a weird thing when it comes to cannabis. You know, I think that alcohol impairment, you know, me personally, I feel like my alcohol impairment is a lot worse, first of all, than cannabis impairment. Um, I personally think that, you know, for myself, driving under the influence of alcohol would be much more dangerous uh, for me than driving under the influence of cannabis. Like, absolutely no question about that. Um, and so I think that it's sort of this weird subjective thing. So I can understand why people would sort of feel that way, uh, because it's not quite as clear cut as it is with drinking. It's uh, it's a fascinating story. I hope uh, people should go read it. I got high to see if I could legally drive under Canada's new impaired driving laws. It's worth a read. Uh, Manisha Krishnan, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've had a few situations going on in the city of Hamilton, a few stories that have raised people's feelings, opinions, whatever, of city council, pro or con, Sewergate, LRT, mayor's dog, on and on and on. And so, of course, it caught my attention when I was reading the Toronto Star the other day and saw this story about a new city councillor in Toronto who is bringing forward a motion to implement term limits on city councillors. And in other words, I mean, for those who don't know what we're talking about, you know, two terms of council, maybe three terms of council, that's it. It's kind of like the U.S. president, that you get to do your two terms and then out you go. It brings in fresh blood. It prevents people from making this a career, on and on and on. Anyway, we talked about it briefly on Friday, but I wanted to bring in the man who started this conversation, at least here. Uh, his name is Councillor Brad Bradford of Ward 19 in Toronto, and he, oh, he's gone. We're gonna get we're gonna get him back because uh, apparently my pressing buttons is uh, still needs some to shake off the rust after the new year. But his idea was that exactly this, that we should that his council, Toronto Council, should bring in some sort of motion that would say you get your two or three terms and then you're done. And there were a number of reasons why he proposed this. But this is something that's been talked about in different councils, including here. It's been talked about for, well, commonly. Brad Bradford joins us now. Brad, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. 
Happy to be here with you. So you are a brand new or reasonably brand new counselor on Toronto Council. Where, where did this idea come from? Because this would seem to be either something that you had before you started running or something happened while you were on in office already in the short time that said, you know, we got to do this. Where did it come from? Well, so the previous counselor uh, in the ward that I had been running in, this was a commitment that that she had made uh, and something that I really respected and believed in. Uh, I also actually had an opportunity to work uh, in city planning at the city of Toronto. So I was, I was down there every day and I would see some of the conversations, some of the discussions and the nature of the politics at a local level in a way that, you know, most residents don't have an opportunity to see firsthand because they're busy living their lives. And it just struck me that, um, you know, incumbency time and time again, I think a lot of us have felt frustrated with politicians and, you know, why are these folks back all the time and making a career out of it? And actually, you know, very little gets done. And I think when you put a time cap on that, uh, it really helps with the motivation. It really incentivizes and provides that clarity to bring a focused, clear agenda forward and to really work on getting things done for residents. There's a whole bunch of things that you've just touched on that I want to dive into here. Let's start with the word you use there, incumbency. Uh, lots of people have said, certainly here in Hamilton, this has been the case forever, that if you are an incumbent, if you have name recognition in the public, that's a huge, huge obstacle for someone who is trying to break in to overcome. Well, it is, and, it, and especially at the local level. I mean, when you think about if, if you're running provincially or federally, you're running on the party tip ticket. But for the most part, local politics, that's not the case. So, you know, in our case here, uh, the provincial government changed the electoral boundaries during the election, but you're, you're running in a federal riding. So that's, that's about 110, 120,000 people uh, in the riding, and, and you're trying to build name recognition. You're trying to connect with residents. You're trying to fundraise. Uh, you're trying to deliver a, effectively a federal campaign at a local level, and that becomes very challenging without those supports. So I think when we look at the data, it's, it makes a really compelling case. Since 2014, here in Toronto, 97% of incumbents won re-election. In 2010, it was 85% of incumbents. And if we pull back and look across Ontario, since 2003, you've had 103 different ward races featuring incumbents. And out of those 103, only 13 challenges have ever un unseated an incumbent. And it's usually wow. related to some sort of, you know, uh, a scandal. So it is an uphill battle for, for challenge candidates. I, I do have to ask, you won. Uh, you're a new councillor. How did you win? How did you overcome that? Well, out of the 25 races here in Toronto in the, the past election, I was one of two that didn't feature in an incumbent. Even, okay. with the, uh, even with the consolidation of two wards, we still didn't have an incumbent. So I did have challenges as I was going against a former federal member of parliament. Uh, so he benefited from a lot of those, uh, those advantages. But it was a tremendous amount of work, and I'm happy to do the, do the work. But we went to 50,000 doors and, and really became a coalition candidate that, that a lot of folks were able to get behind. And even with all that work, you know, I won by 288 votes out of 37,000 huh. casts. So it was tight. Do you believe, now again, you've been around politics, you've been around City Hall, uh, and probably some of your colleagues won't love you answering this question, <laughs> but do you believe that councillors get stale, that politicians generally can get stale? I think like any job, you can point to, you know, people who, who do a tremendous amount of work and, and bring their time and their energy and, and a thoughtful dialogue to the job. Uh, and then you can also find people where uh, it still leaves a lot to be desired. And, and certainly that was the case uh, previously 
uh, on Toronto, Toronto City Council. Uh, and I can think about the jobs that I had before that, where, where you've got people who are really effective and people who are less so. I think there is a tendency when you know that there's a 90% plus chance of getting reelected and maybe you don't even have to go to the doors, uh, you know, how bad do you want it? How much energy are you bringing to the job? I can think of people who, you know, have been reelected many times and uh, are fantastic for the residents and are moving a, a positive agenda forward and making a, making a positive difference. But I can also point to a lot of folks uh, who are probably past their prime. I guess it's, for me, it's less about getting rid of incumbents and it's more about giving people new voices and opportunity to lead. You know, Hamilton is a big city, uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people there, if, if, you know, smart, competent people who thought if they had odds that were, say, better than 90% stack against them, you get a lot more competitive people running for council, and you would have a different conversation around that council chamber. And by the way, Brad, I, I didn't ask, do you have a certain number in mind of what a term limit should be? Is it two, three, four, five? Have you got something? Well, so I've talked about two, I've talked about three, uh, I think three here, you know, in the Ontario context, that's 12 years, that's a lot of time to do a lot of good work. So that's sort of my personal view, but the direction and the motion, I'm, I'm looking staff to look at examples of Los Angeles, New York, other jurisdictions where this has been implemented. Let's talk to the public about it. Let's get some consultation and let's come up with uh, with a number that works here in the Toronto context. What about the public? I, I'm guessing, and I, have, I haven't talked to you about this before, I'm guessing that this would be something that would resonate and would be a political winner with a lot of people in the public, is it? Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's different views on it for sure. Uh, and, and I think when you talk to different audiences, it's received in different ways. Some people feel that that's inherently undemocratic. Like that that's the big sort of uh, knock against it that, that people would suggest. Um, you know, I, I find that when there's an election and, and the odds are stacked percentage-wise 90% uh, against everyone else, like that's, that's not necessarily fair either. Uh, and I think it's really about what is our goals. You know, our, our, our goals are you know, more diversity in our representation, providing leadership opportunities for new people, new voices. Uh, I think all of that's healthy, and it, it's not to discredit experience. You can get a lot of experience and get a lot done in a, a three-term uh, role. One of the other big criticisms is that, well, if, if you're only there for, you know, a fixed number of terms, you know, and this was in the article in the Star, one of my colleagues suggested that you wouldn't be motivated to return the emails. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of funny, right? Like we all show up to do our job every day and work hard. Uh, and, and, you know, as if uh, you're not going to take action or move an agenda forward because you're not running again for re-election. I think it's actually quite the opposite. You're more focused and you're more vo- motivated. And it really uh, puts, a, puts a time limit effectively for you to get some things done. Well, and you know, I mean, look, when I heard this and when I started thinking about it, I thought there's no reason, I don't think why under your idea that let's say that Brad Bradford serves his three terms. What's to say you couldn't go and work as a paid advisor for one of the other counselors to bring your experience? People say you would lose the experience. You could go and advise someone or work for an office or work for a counselor. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and like, let's be honest, you know, all of us are looking to make a difference and a positive contribution. There's a million different ways you can do that. Uh, it doesn't have to be through politics. Politics is, is one avenue to do that. Uh, but there, there are many different ways uh, where we make a difference and get involved in different organizations, whether that's, you know, local sports or helping out at the food bank, uh, doing media stuff. I mean, the, the options are really limitless. Uh, politics is one avenue, but it's a privilege. It's an honor to serve. Come in, focus, get some stuff done, and then make room for new leadership. 
But here's my guess, and I and I, I don't think I'm wrong on this one, but I could be. I find it hard to believe that city councilors at some point, at any point, are going to vote for their own extinction, especially yeah. those who believe that they've got the name recognition and they can ride this thing out and make a career of it. How are you ever going to get them to vote themselves, essentially, out of office? Well, I think, uh, Scott, you kind of nailed it. It's a bit of a conflict of interest, uh, in a sense. We are asking people to uh, make a determination on the, their future job prospects. Uh, but I, I think that's the wrong way um, for, for us as elected officials to really frame it. Uh, everybody's very eager to put up their hand and say that they want to see more diversity. Uh, everybody is very eager to put up their hand and say that incumbency bias is a problem. And yet taking the concrete steps to actually address that, um, you know, a lot less in enthusiasm. That's been my experience here. And I know it's not a popular motion amongst my colleagues, but sometimes you want, <laughs> to, yeah, sometimes you want to be on the right side of an issue and you lead by example. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, I, there, are, there are some colleagues here that are supportive of this idea uh, and that have uh, expressed, including the mayor, uh, John Tory as well, you know, is supportive of this idea, but it is not a majority. And so I think we need to have this conversation as a public, uh, you know, increase the dialogue and get people talking about it. Uh, inherently, politicians respond to pressure. Um, and, you know, we're here to represent the constituency. And so if this is something that uh, people want to move forward, I would encourage them to reach out to their elected official and ask them what their view on it. So uh, realistically, though, would this be something that would have to be passed down from the provincial government, from the uh, Ministry of Municipal Affairs or something that would say, hey, we're going to do this? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the option is for the city uh, to make that a policy here at the city of Toronto or the city of Hamilton, perhaps. But uh, if, you know, ultimately that could be challenged, I suppose uh, the legislation could be challenged. So we would need to make an alignment with the provincial government. It's interesting. They, they obviously, in the Toronto context, um, got very involved in our election in, in 2018. Uh, but, you know, the premier, when, when Doug Ford was actually at Toronto City Council, this was something that he had supported. So I think that there would be uh, support up at Queen's Park. But again, we need to get our house in order here uh, at the city of Toronto. And, and I would like to see more of my colleagues come on board with this idea. Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches, East York. A great idea, great for bringing it forward and for, as you say, being on the right side of this. And I appreciate you taking the time today. Been a slice, Scott. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bring Don Robertson into the conversation. Don is the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty. He runs the Dundas Real McCoys hockey team. Uh, and he has, I'm told, according to a picture I saw on Facebook, he is now the owner of a lovely billboard tucked away somewhere in the armpit of Dundas. Where exactly is this billboard? Right beside Enterprise. I, I called up. I've wanted Is this on uh, coming up the hill? Yep. Oh, well, that's not in the armpit of... Everybody in town sees that I was being, oh, I being was, sarcastic, yeah. which isn't like me. No, I thought you... When you said it was like hidden in the bush, I thought you had taken it on one of the backs... <laughs> a old Ancaster Road or something where they... No, that's... No, the, that's back, where, the backdrop of it is all bush. So oh, okay. I, that's, no, that's a brilliant spot. That's... Yeah, the guy said... Tried to sell me about three other ones. I've never used a billboard before. And I think, well, I'm going to give this a whirl because I like that spot. And... Uh, he said, well, you can't have it for eight months, but he said, I've got three or four other boards that are, you know, available. I said, well, I'll wait. And he said, well, the other ones that are available. I said, the other ones are available because they're not worth seeing. <laughs> yeah. So I'll wait. 
Good call. So I did. Well, see, I didn't realize where it was, and I, I took you at your word that it was buried somewhere where yeah. no one would ever see it. No, oh, that's sarcasm. It's, it hasn't been egged yet, but the few guys have taken oh, swipes at it. D- d- don't say that on the air. That's just enticing. <laughs> that's just giving people ideas. Kevin Harvey said Friday night he's, he went by it. He's, uh, he plays with the McCoys. And uh, he said, I got a paintball gun. He said, I'll fix that up this weekend. So Lord knows if it'll make it a month. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> you should tell people, though, that you do have the video camera on there to uh, to see anyone who does anything to it. <laughs> that might encourage more. Well, guys, people mooning it all of a sudden. The, <laughs> the loons I know will be happy to get video smacking it around. Hey, thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Um, Lots to talk about. We've got a lot of stuff going on. You, at the end of last Monday's show, made a comment about the World Junior Team, which was? Leave them alone. They're only teenagers. And uh, everybody was just dumping on them when Russia smacked them around and beat them like a rented mule. But Russia didn't, because they're kids and they're teenagers, they didn't wear their success well. You know, they said, you know, it's like playing Kazakhstan uh, or whatever you say. It sounds like grapes. Can't even say it. But Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan. And, I like uh, Kazakhstan better. <laughs> they take great glee in saying that we just smacked Canada around and they've never been shut out in this tournament before. And, you know, people take note. Uh, Dale Hunter's a pretty crafty coach, so assuredly he brought it up and... But I will tell you, I was not the most optimistic hockey fan in the world. When it was about eight minutes to go, we were down 3-1, and I, <laughs> I was thought Sue said, do you think they're done? And I said, well, in five and a half periods, they've scored one goal, and it was five on three. So, But it is junior hockey, and a lot can happen in a hurry, and thank goodness for the TSN camera, or they may not have won. Let me go back to your point from last week, though, because – I've heard, I mean, obviously we've heard this many, many times, people saying lay off their teenagers, lay off their, you know, all this kind of stuff. But when you consider the fact that when they win, they are treated as legends, they're treated as conquering heroes, they're treated as the biggest deal in the world. There were hundreds of people at Toronto Airport today when they arrived home. People are talking about the captain being a legend now because he played with a sore shoulder. If you're going to treat them as these massive national heroes if they win, why should they not be subject to criticism if they lose or if they don't play well? seems to me that it's two sides of the same coin. Well, I'm not sure they should be treated as national heroes and so on, as they have been. But, you know, we get excited about hockey, which is why everybody dumps on them when they don't do well. I don't think, I think the highs are too, uh, pardon me, magnified. And the lows are uh, spat on too, too often. So I think there's not enough balance there. But I can tell you, by winning gold, those kids will be friends for the rest of their life. Sure they will. Todd Harvey uh, was captain, I think, twice. And assuredly, um, whenever he bumps into uh, the guys he played on that world championship team, I think it was in Red Deer, he was wearing a cowboy hat around afterwards, are still buddies. And they'll still sit and have a beer and a plate of wings and chat about it. See, there was a, there is a commercial that was playing through the tournament, and anyone who watched the tournament regularly throughout would have seen it. And it was of the captain from last year, Comtois, who missed a penalty shot. And Canada lost as a result, or that was part of the thing that led to it. And he got heavily, heavily criticized in social media afterwards. And the commercial was saying, let's stop bullying. And I'm looking at this going, well, wait a second. I, 
again, I'm not looking to dump on these kids. I'm not out for yep. blood. But if if he had scored that penalty shot, he would have been a national hero. If he doesn't, is it bullying when people criticize it? Or is it just the criticism that comes with, you're either going to be the hero or the goat? That's how sports works. And you, when you sign on to play in this tournament, you know what comes with it and no one is forcing you to have to wear that Canadian jersey. You are dying to wear that jersey, but you know what can happen. I think it falls under the category you take the good with the bad. My my sense is though is that they are still teenagers. I mean, they're high school students for the well a lot of them maybe aren't cuz their majority of them are 19, but they're they're young men. I mean, they're barely old enough to drink, but you're right. You are take, any of them not going to play in the NHL? Yeah, there'll be some not playing. Not uh, many. No, not many any anymore. But when you're talking about hero or goat, uh, was it Visentine, the goaltender from Waterdown? Yep, Mark, who's now uh, not now not playing hockey. Well, not because of that, because he, he suffered hip injuries. But he's, he's got some injuries. I called him last year to see if he was interested. And it's you're right. There's uh, there's an injury component with him. But boy, that's a lot to wear. Well, and and that Justin Pogge didn't play much. He was a hero. That was totally, uh, in my mind, totally unfair in Byzantine. The enti- that was in 2011 in Buffalo when Canada had a three-goal lead in the third period and collapsed. And it wasn't Byzantine who stunk the joint out. The entire team yes, just they stopped in front of him, and he was he's the goalie, so he ends up wearing it, and he's the guy who wears it. But that's you, back to your comment. Your goat or hero, and everybody in the, in the media which you're a proud member of, um, portrays it that way. I mean, there can't be a soft landing. When Canada loses gold, now the reference you make to the captain the year before is interesting because they didn't even make it to the medal round. They got beat out in the quarterfinals last year. Like, they didn't get anywhere last year. There was a, the whole thing was not successful I just and have, not acceptable. I just have a, a, a problem, a challenge. I don't know what the word is. To me, there is a difference between criticism and bullying. And if you are playing in this tournament, like it or not, well, you've chosen to play in this tournament. Again, no one has put a gun to your head. You have signed up that you could be criticized. If you're going to be a professional athlete, you have signed up that there is going to be criticism. I I don't believe that is bullying. I think bullying is some, I, I believe wholeheartedly bullying exists. I'm not saying nobody's bullied. That to me is a different kind of thing. The kid that scored the winning goal played four minutes before that. Yeah. He was out there because of an injury. Who's the, who's the kid that the, the, the their best player that uh, will go high and draft? Lafreniere. Uh, Lafreniere. We talked last week about, you know, should you let these guys go? Do they hurt themselves and everything else? Now, he has risen to stardom. Because it looks like he battled through an injury. Yep. Same with Hayden. Same with the captain. Same with same with the cap. Both those guys' status, because they went there and played hurt, has now been elevated to Gretzky-like proportions. Like, that will bode well for both of those guys. Look at those kids. They play hurt. They play to win. So their stock went way up. So again, back to taking the good with the bad. Like, if he gets hurt and he's out for two months... Oh, looks like a dumb idea. Doesn't look like a dumb idea now, though. Well, it looks like a dumb idea. Well, not a dumb idea, but I mean, the, the Hamilton Bulldogs lost their best player, uh, Jan Yannick, who yeah. was over there playing for the Czech Republic, and it was an innocuous hit that, like, you looked and you went, how did he get hurt? And it looks like his knee is seriously bunked up and he won't be playing at all for the team, and he was going to be a trade, the guy they were going to trade and load up on 
pieces for the future. Yeah. And now he's worthless to the Bulldogs because next year he's not going to be back because he'll be playing pro hockey somewhere. So I don't know. I, I That commercial to me, that one with Comtois skating around and the people in the stands holding up their signs saying, I'm against bullying, that, that to me was a little precious. I mean, it's a little... It's missing the point. You, you, if you're playing in this, there is a risk reward. If you're an athlete, there is a risk and a reward. And you don't, in my mind, and maybe I'm just being hard-hearted, you don't get to have the rewards of being called a legend if there wasn't the risk yeah. that you could have been the GOAT. That's, that's why we celebrate sports. We're excited about it. It's not win or doesn't matter. Watch people in New Orleans in the end of the game, in the football game. The, the fans, it hurt those fans when they lost that overtime game. That's why sports is great because it's why either, there's such great emotion in it too, it's, right? It's because it matters. And so I don't think that it's a reasonable thing or a fair thing to say fans who are critical are somehow bullying a young man. I don't, I don't equate criticism and bullying. I just don't. Well, I think there's a point where it can be that. Yeah, there's a difference between critiquing it and being a fan and being annoyed and being outright rude and and well, not bullying, just being a bad person. I mean, like anybody that wants to all out dump on a bunch of teenagers to me is nuts. Saying if, if that guy, okay, so last year in the penalty shot that he didn't score on, if you go on on uh, Twitter or Instagram, or whatever, say you know what, that was a terrible shot the guy took. I got no issue with that. That's that's your right to have that opinion. If you say that guy, you know, he, he sh- whatever. If you're commenting on the action, I've got no problem with it. If you say that guy's a big, ugly doofus whose mother blah, 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 and on and on. Well, that's a, okay, that's a different. That's bullying. That's a different kind of thing. And I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if it's bullying or just completely out of line criticism because bullying to me, you know, if, if someone that I've never met I'm never going to meet, has no impact on my life, says something negative about me. Is that bullying? I don't know. I think bullying's changed a lot in the last... The definition has, yeah. Five years. I mean, holy crap. I mean, what used to happen and was acceptable and thought as criticism is now bullying. The definition has changed. Yeah, dramatically. But I don't know that just because you've changed the name of something, it, I don't know that it changes the thing itself. Well, there's a guy that... If I suddenly say your hair is orange, it doesn't change the fact that your hair is gray. It's still the same. It's just changing the word doesn't change the meaning of what you're talking about. Bullying absolutely exists. I'm I'm not disputing that for a second. I just get back to the point. I just don't think in most cases that the criticism of these kids at the time when they, they lost six, nothing to the Russians and looked horrible. People being invested in this that's why these kids want to play in this tournament because Canada is invested in this. But there's better. Uh, there can be better ways to put it. Like, oh, I'm not saying like, like, like that. Like that certainly wasn't our best effort. They'd like to have that game back and play it again. Let them play it again tomorrow. You'll see a different outcome. There's a different way to dump on guys saying, you know, I, I saw on Facebook a friend of mine put on there. Canada's tournament is now over. Well, that person's an idiot. Of course, I brought. I used to search that Facebook and say, "Well, they're not done yet." Oh, Canada's Canada's tournament is now done. So every time they won a game, I went, "Well, they're not done yet. They're not done yet." And then when they won yesterday, I went on and said, "Now they're done." Of course, he has some rude comments, but that's what do you expect from a guy that posts that? I just liked aggravating him. But 
Look, I, I think that it's a it, it's a there's a balancing act here because again they are young men. You don't want to be commenting racially or you know in anything like that. But I, you know, if you're going to play at this level, yeah, you'd better be able to take criticism because it's going to come. It's going to come, and it's going to come unless you win. Win or give a great effort and lose or you know and again there's the losing six nothing and being completely outmanned and outmatched and overpowered considering when we saw what they played they were a better team than that i i i don't have a problem with them being criticized i have a problem with with going over a certain limit but them being criticized it's okay if they play it again tonight the russians might win maybe but i don't believe they'd win six nothing no no that was a one-off that was a one-off I mean, it would have been the same uh, because it's the kids, because it's junior hockey. Canada could have won 5-1 the next game. My question, well, it, we'll never know, but if Canada had lost 6 nothing and there was no response from anybody at all, there was a giant yawn from Canadians, would Canada have won yesterday? I think the coaches did a good job, but... Um, There's something... I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, oddly enough, and generally I do, and... Who knows? But I also look at it and say, you know what? There's a pride element, and there's a there's a lot of different pieces that go into this. Anyway, I just it, it was an interesting one. Let's stick with the juniors for just a second, Don. Uh, the end of the championship game yesterday, Vladislav Trechek came out to. I thought this was funny when the Russians come out to get their silver medals. They're presented by Vladislav Trechek, one of the all time legends of hockey. When Canada goes to get its gold medal, some guy who's an administrator with somebody comes out to give their medals. Like, wait, you couldn't find Paul Henderson then to come and do this or whatever. But anyway, who's the guy I would have loved. I was thinking to myself, if I was on that team, now they're probably too young to even know who he is, but if I was on that team after Russia goes through and gets their medals, I'm probably just slipping up there to say, can I get a picture with you? Because Trechak is oh, for sure. that guy who, who <clears throat> would be preferably someone living some, some legend of sports, who would be the the sports legend that you would just die, even at this age, die to meet and sit down and have a tea with? Oh, my goodness. I didn't see that coming. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And I used to enjoy, uh, I had a lot of tea with Bobby Hull when his boys played hockey for us. And that's a good story there. Oh, he's 81. He yeah. was 81 the other day. And that wouldn't have been my guess that that longevity was going to happen, but good for him. I, I, uh, I don't know. I, maybe Art Scove. Art Scove, uh, war number one is an NHL referee. A ref, wow. Windsor, Ontario. Remember, my background is refereeing. Of all the names you could have possibly thrown out. You didn't see that one coming? I could have been here till (laughs) the end of time, and I would have never come up with Art Scove. (laughs) Well, you know, they they refereed in the old days when, um, remember the- Bill Friday and- Bill Friday, who I've- Bob Myers. Bobby, well, I've had- uh, You've had a few teas with Bob Myers. I have, Yes. And some of those guys. So I've been fortunate enough. I guess Bobby Orr to have an extended. I, I mean, I golfed with Bobby uh, one year and uh, have said many times he is by far the nicest professional athlete I've ever met. So to maybe go have a dinner with him again, that would be 
That he, would be rather special. He was at uh, Ryan Ellis's golf tournament a couple of years ago. That may yep. be where you golfed with him. No, it wasn't. I golfed with him like 25 years ago. All right. And he, but he was there, and I talked to him briefly for a story for the paper, but I sat there after I was done with him. And again, I probably was with five or six minutes I spent with him, and then watched other people. And boy, if there's ever a guy who gets it, yes, who understands his place in the pecking order of sports and in the pantheon of understanding people, it matters to people to get their picture with me, to shake hands with me. And even though I may think it's ridiculous because it's just me, yes. he gets it and he does it and he smiles and he looks you in the eye and he gives you a firm handshake and he makes it, makes you feel like you're not an idiot for asking. And he appreciates like that. That was a guy who just to me got it. Yes. Uh, he did, Bobby Bobby Hull did, because he took the time, but Bobby Orr really gets it, and, and he still gets it. I'll tell you I'll tell you what a wonderful person Bobby Orr is. is a, a pretty good friend of mine, his brother was going through some, um, some chemo, and uh, Bobby would ask him how he was doing, and he told him, he said, you know, he's, uh, you know, you know, he's getting, things, things are looking a little better, he's getting a little better. You haven't got a cell phone number, have you? And he went, really? And he said, yeah, just give me, you know, if I'm not doing anything. So, he called him, and this guy's brother called him the next week and said, you're not going to believe who called me. He went, Bobby Orr. He said, yeah. And this is in November. So the brother calls my buddy and says, on Christmas Day, and said, you haven't called me yet. He said, well, I told you, I'll call you after dinner. Yeah, well, Bobby, Bobby Orr called me. He said, what? He said, yeah. He said, he's called me four times. And he was in Boston, and he hmm. would call him. So when you talk about legendary people, and then you hear a story like that, this is just a, a, a fr- no. Or and and the, and my buddy are pretty good friends, but to call his brother because he's going through a tough time tells you all you need to know about Bobby Orr. There was a uh, I wrote a story years ago. It's it's oh boy, it's got to be ten years, maybe more now. There was a girl who played soccer in Hamilton. I just remember her name was Rebecca because she went by Becca, which sounds like Beckham. And somebody got in touch. She was very ill with cancer. She ended up passing away. But uh, before she did, obviously, somebody in the family got a hold of some of David Beckham's people. And all of a sudden there was a, a soccer shirt signed to her and David Beckham was on the phone calling her to, to talk with her just days before she died. And again, the thing that I think so many athletes, actors, Paul, whoever – forget is they either get massively big-headed and think i am so important that i don't have time for you or they think that it's ridiculous that somebody would want to talk to them because they're just them yes and they're not being mean-spirited they just don't they think that they're a big deal this is no big deal i put my legs on or pants on one leg at a time like you do and and so almost out of their humility they go it's not important to talk to me and it is it is it really is. And I don't know if you, have you seen that, that new TV commercial for, uh, for Tim Hortons with Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's, a, it's actually a really well done it is. commercial. Very, Very well classy. done. And it goes again to the point of, here's a story of Wayne Gretzky talking about the day that he met Tim Horton years and years ago. And how much it meant to him. How much it meant to him. And the day, the, the very famous picture that was taken by a photographer at the Brantford Expositor that's used everywhere of Gordie Howe with the little, with the stick around Wayne Gretzky's neck yeah. at a dinner in Brantford. Again, Gordie, uh, imagine how different Wayne Gretzky's view of hockey and a lot of other things is if he goes to that dinner and Gordie Howe 
Snubs them. Snubs them, brushes them off, doesn't give them time, just sort of signs absently the autograph. And and I can remember one year, Don, and I'm not going to say who the guy was because I don't want to hang him out to dry because I think generally this guy's a pretty good guy. But anyway, there was a, a an athlete, pro athlete, big, big name athlete who came to the B'nai B'rith Sports Celebrity Dinner. And if you were brought to the that dinner... It's because you're a big name and people want to have their picture with you. They want to sign your, they want to, whatever. And this guy acted like the last place he wanted in the world to be was there. And it's like. Why come? Why come and why ruin your reputation? Every single person who came up to you now thinks you're a jerk or a pompous whatever. And you can't fix that. How many autographs? You don't get many chances to fix it. How many, how many autographs? And how much time do you think Wayne Gretzky took with small kids and fans because of his experience with Tim Horton and Gordie Howe? I bet you a lot. Knowing how important it was to him as a kid. Do you remember when, uh, I always remember this one, when Cal Ripken set the record for most consecutive games played, he, remember he, after the game, he did the victory lap around and basically did high fives and all around Camden Yards and then stayed out on the field for or went in to do some interviews and then came out and signed autographs for something like two hours afterwards. So, you know, the amazing thing to me, these guys, you know, we talk about Trecek. I mean, I don't think he made the money. He's probably doing okay. But but these guys today who are making tens of millions of dollars, many of them get it. I believe that. I believe many of them get it and many of them put the time in and many of them sign the autographs and take the pictures. But if you don't, where do you think your money is coming from? Isn't that the truth? The guy that wants you to sign the jersey with your name on, he just bought. And even if you say, well, okay, but player X doesn't really get directly the money from that jersey. Okay, think it through for a second. You're getting paid by an owner who's getting paid from ticket sales and advertising. And the advertising, the people who advertise, McDonald's aren't just paying for the fun of it. They're getting money to pay out of people buying burgers so they can pay for the advertising. And every time then you go buy a burger or buy a Molson's or buy whatever, you're contributing. If the people are paying for these. If you're an athlete or an actor or whomever and you won't sign an autograph or take a picture and there's not a good reason, you've, you've, you've missed the point completely. Yeah, you've missed a great opportunity. And, and, and I, I think there are situations where guys are um, – Sorry after the fact when actually they wander through the mall and nobody knows them and they'd love it if a kid come up and and uh, ask for the autograph. One of the great all-time commercials is uh, Mean Joan Green. Yep, Pepsi. Was it Pepsi? Yeah, nineteen. Coke. Was it Coke? I don't remember. It was one or the other. And it was Coke. Yeah, I'm told. Okay, it was Coke. Oops, sorry, Coke. And uh, went back and give the kid a. Like I'm just a mountain of a guy handing a little six year old yep. the the bottle of coke, and I get thinking, wow, that was better than the polar polar bear. And then throwing a shirt at him, yeah. And then throwing a shirt. At him. Look, I I would like to back to the question when Trechek popped out there. I would. There's not many at this point. There are not many people that I would go out of my way. Trechek's one of them. to me. Trechek would be one of them. Trechek uh, because not only is he a legend, but I. He, and maybe it's completely wrong, but the read you get from his persona is that he would be a very decent guy. You just get that sense. So the people under 50 years old, Trechiak was the goaltender that kept the USSR in 
the uh, Summit Series. Yeah. And played net, and Henderson scored the uh, biggest goal in Canadian hockey history on Tretiak. Well, and the guy who played in the New Year's Eve game. Against Montreal. Probably, they say, the best game ever played, or at least one of them, and, and he was the only reason Montreal didn't win that game 10-3 as opposed to 3-all. But Guess who refereed that game? Was that Bob Myers? Yep. There you go. Owner and operator of Myers Apple Farm on Copetown Road. See, you can go to the apple farm. Does he still work out in the, out in, does he still work there? He sure does. Last so time I go. was there, he was sorting apples and. No, there you go. Bob's a great guy, by the way. If uh, if you do go to the apple farm. Dundas Sports Wall of Fame. Yeah, just recently. Anyway, so uh, other than uh, Art. Art Sampson? Art, no, no. Who, who's the guy you said that you would, uh, the referee that you said you Art would. Art Scove. Art Scove. Anyone else? I think Orr is there. Winston Churchill, if he was still around. What did he play? Probably soccer. I think he was right wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was right wing. <laughs> uh, Bernie Perrant would be my other one, by the way. All, both goalies. Both from, goalies. From an old goalie. Maybe Magic Johnson. I don't know. See, the, the funny part, we've got to go to break. The funny part about this, too, the, new, the more recent, the less likely that I'd be. And maybe because they just seem more, I don't know. The further away, they seem more legendary. Anyway. Kawhi Reynolds, uh, Kawhi Leonard would be Kawhi interesting. Leonard. I'd oh. like to see what he's made out of. You might get three words. Do you talk a lot? No, I'm saying he doesn't seem like. I that's what I mean. Get three words. I, out I of don't him. know if that's what he is or not. A non-athlete after last night, Ricky Gervais. Ooh. Yeah, Ricky Gervais. Um, we weren't even going to talk about this, but let's just say this: there is something beautiful <laughs> about watching someone. Put a pin in the balloon of those, not all, but a largely pious. That wasn't really a pin. It was more of a big, large well, object up the. You know, it, n- I, not all celebrities are buffoons and not all are hypocritical. And, but you know, when those, when, when some of them do get up on stage or do act in a way that they're telling you how you should live your life and then you see them living completely differently. It is kind of fun to see the air being taken out of those bloviating windbags. And, and that's what he did. And he opened it up that way. And nobody wants to hear a political speech when you get up here. Didn't deter many of them. Do you think that those celebrities, when they showed up at that dinner yesterday, were all saying, oh, please don't let him mention me? Oh, oh please. yeah. Please. Anybody else, just not me. Mention Joe Pesci. He said, don't whack me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, please. Anybody but me would be fine. Uh, Don, thanks for coming in. Always appreciate it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.